Welcome to the Elemental Awakening. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Elemental Awakening podcast. Today, I have a special guest, Scott Nonboom. Scott, welcome to the show. Giovanni, hey, man. It's good to see you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. And uh, Scott's a really interesting guy. We actually met at Rhythmia a couple of years back, sitting by the pool. Um, I noticed something interesting that caught my attention. He was missing a toe. Um, and it sparked a conversation. I, I think it was initially tracked this wicked badass tattoo he had on his leg. Uh, and then we just talked for like an hour or two. And I just realized we had a lot of, a lot in common. Um, and he's a super interesting guy. He's into jujitsu. He's into breath work and tumo meditation, um, into like biometrics and measuring HRV. Um, he was a former executive in Silicon Valley. It's one of the biggest companies in the world, one of them being Apple. Um, and now he's doing some really cool things around saving the planet, um, working in the cloud space. Um, and he just got back from a 10 day dark retreat. So we got a lot of shit to talk about today, different ways we can go. Um, first off, Scott, just tell me a bit about you and um, a little bit of how um, you got to where you are today. Uh, a little bit of the backstory that led you to where you're doing now. Yeah, so, so to kind of connect the different worlds, which is one kind of the fast moving, have to be ultra successful tech thing to uh, running that that uh, train off the rails and having to figure out more about yourself. Um, so I was born in uh, Richmond, Michigan, which is a little bit north of Detroit, uh, to very young parents. My mom was 16 years old. My dad was 19, uh, which then caused my dad to need to go off in the military during Vietnam times and you know be a responsible adult. And, uh, you know, relative to when I think about things to kind of connect the positives or the negatives, uh, I am uneducated. I'm a high school dropout, uh, never really fit so much into that kind of system and, and had a, lived a, a fairly rough childhood relative to things. But one of the best things that ever happened was, is my dad uh, became an engineer in California and bought me a computer. So I initially got into the video game space and the hacking space and cracking video games and, you know, cloning mobile brick phones and all that kind of fun stuff. So a little mischievous stuff, but also realized that I could make some kind of legit uh, money off of that. So, you know, I came up and really had uh, the gift of having exposure to tech really early. And uh, that, that got me through a lot of hard times from kind of homelessness and meeting my wife who also was in a tough situation. And then getting into this path of growing from, holy shit, I made 10,000 a year to holy shit, you make 100,000 a year to holy shit, you add another zero onto that. And holy shit, maybe if I make $100 million, I'll be happy. And then you start to buy yourself stuff and all that kind of dance. and you start to think, well, what the fuck's going on? Um, I, I'm succeeding, but uh, it, I'm still not happy. And uh, that's probably often the route of people how uh, start to ex have to explore things deeper than this kind of material world, which it was really through the action of climbing this steep curve of success, reaching a pinnacle of something that wasn't good enough, and then having everything fall apart in your personal life and everything. and. Uh, very soon thereafter, I met you. So, um, yeah, that's really what's connected me from my subtle spiritual self to Scott, the guy who likes to win and be the best at everything and, and all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah, that's, yeah, uh, that's it's super interesting. I wonder if there's like a, a hero's journey that overlaps with that sort of entrepreneurial or success driven story, because I've heard the same story many times. 
Uh, and it's interesting because it's usually the most interesting people where hardship, then like this proving themselves or seeing a way out through success, um, really believing that, going down that path, getting all the success, still feeling empty, crashing back down, then finding themselves in a more, say, spiritual or consciousness driven way. When did you start realizing that the material wasn't cutting it or wasn't going to cut it? You know, was it like an aha moment or was it just like more and more and more, maybe I'll get there? Like, like can you explain that a little a bit more in detail, that part of your, your story? You know, so after, you know, we met and everything, you've had the pleasure of meeting Anissa and my wife who, you know, opposites attract. She's a native Hawaiian girl with the ultimate aloha spirit where I can uh, have, at least in the past and sometimes can be pretty high strung in the, the moment uh, she she uh, said she was going to leave me uh, was the moment that I realized that I was losing everything. Mm -hmm. And the moment that I realized that um, the codependency, uh, codependency we had and the fact that I couldn't live with myself. And uh, that really, you know, just like any kind of hero's journey or any kind of tough, addictive journey people go through, that to me was like a rock bottom. And it, not was because, it wasn't just because I was losing the person that I love more than anything. I was losing the person who distracted me from myself. Mm. And so what's mm. funny is that they always say like, what's the biggest driver that drove your success? And uh, it actually was the biggest problem. The words that stick in my head is, is you know, since I'm a little kid, someone probably the most influential person in, in my life would say to me, you're no good for nothing. And so I spent my life and built incredible success, which by the way, in some ways is a, is a gift because I probably wouldn't have been so driven to prove those words wrong. But eventually what you learn is those words, you keep hearing them and they keep you know, regurgitating in your mind. But after that one person stops telling you that back when I was whatever, 15 years old, it's actually you that's telling yourself that. And so it became a lot of, you know, who am I trying to please? And then who am I leaning on for conditions of love that I didn't have for myself? So that really had to break and uh, it sucked, man. <laughs> yeah, sucked. so yeah, the breaking process. Um, yeah, because that's just a subconscious program deep in your mind that you believe that is true and you want to sort of prove it otherwise. So how, how did you sort of break free from that fully? Like, I know like the aha moment the, the was, was Anissa saying like, hey, like that's it. Um, what happened like after, like, you know, I know, like where was the gap between that and, and, and Rhythmia? And I know you were working on your HRV for a while, trying to get that up. And after, you know, Rhythmia, we, we saw something there. So is there any relation between that part? Yeah, so even when those problems were going on, because this was all during like the same crazy time of my last startup company, which is, you know, that without, with perfection is a, is a grind and is incredibly tough. And uh, yeah, what I, what I would say is, is I started to establish a Buddhist practice and a mindfulness practice and some breath work practice and a daily meditation practice. But what I would say is, is when you're too deep in the darkness, you know, I could feel those things were doing good, but, the, but, you know, I would say several years of practice didn't have, impact because I, I wasn't able to I was too far down the other side of the path and so what happened was and this is this leads into where we met is um you know relative to ayahuasca and rhythmia and all of this stuff I uh, I was part of a kind of a world-class 
fighting gym where one of the boxing trainers in there, his name is Wheatsy, uh, you know, rest in peace. He kind of passed away, was a Native American. And there were some folks doing ayahuasca ceremonies and sweat lodge ceremonies in a, in a really cool place close to, close to here in the Bay Area. And I always heard about a lot of fighters going there. And I thought, ah, I don't need to do any of that. And uh, when things got um, really tough with Anissa, you know, and I, I turned into a beggar, begged her to stay and that I would change. I got a strange call from someone from my, the fight team who I hadn't seen in probably 15 years, Carlos, who you met. And uh, he called me and said, you know what, just something was telling me I had to, I needed to check in on you. And by the way, I always saw Carlos as a kid because when I stopped fighting, I was like 34 years old and this kid was like 20 something, whatever. And so here, here it is years later and now probably 30 something Carlos is calling me and saying, you know, just something to check in. You know, did you, what do you think about ayahuasca? Do you feel any calling for that? And I, I, I was crazy. So along those lines of things, uh, that was shocking to me, a little uncomfortable. And what I did was, is I thought, well, this is something new and scary to me. So I'm going to look for some bougie, fancy, awesome place to go. And I searched and found Rhythmia and go figure who was who was the the guest who was uh the guest host there and then there we go so it really calling there came via very mysterious means and it was through those plant medicine ceremonies that i would say that all of those years of meditation breath work and everything and and keep in mind uh you know this when I, I had a long record for well over a year before this of doing all these exercises, measuring heart rate variability and, you know, doing all those exercises daily because I'm, I'm a, you know, healthy mindset or not, I'm, I'm always pretty curious. So I was always trying to do things to make a difference and I would wake up and do my breath pattern and take my heart rate variability. I get like a 17 number and I would go, oh nothing I'm doing is working um, through those plant medicine ceremonies. What I got when I was in Costa Rica was all of those exercises, all of those teachings in Buddhism, all of those meditation sessions all came to me. All the gains of about several years of work came to me and my heart rate variability changed and was reading 90s, 80s uh, and really has never gone back to where it was before. And uh, that's the crazy shit. So it's almost like it was all that work I was doing was kind of in the till. I just needed to click over and it all kicked pulling back the arrow. Yeah, you're pulling back the arrow ready for the, uh, the slingshot effect. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, again, like another another very common sort of story where, you know, when you when you really are like, OK, like I need this Hail Mary literally the phone just rings and someone's like, Hey, Scott, I had a feeling I should call you. I got something coming up. What do you think? And then your awareness is then boom. Oh my God. Yes. I need to do something. You just feel it in intuitively. Like, yeah, there's now this strong calling. Like I needed a direction. Something pointed me to ayahuasca or plant medicine or whatever. It could be anything for anyone really. Um, and then you go and then you find something. And then we met there, which was pretty awesome to meet uh, such an interesting guy like yourself. We, we also bumped into each other again in, uh, in uh, Beverly Hills there. We had a weekend retreat there, which was awesome. So, so what happened after that? So you got things changed pretty dr uh, dramatically after your uh, Rhythmia and you went in some different directions? 
yeah, I really learned to, to be able to quiet myself and come in touch with kind of this subtle self and the subtle energy. And I started to learn a lot of things like I, in my career, I'm, I, I'm a creator of new stuff and new technologies and everything. And once I started to kind of calm myself down, and it's so interesting because now I'm thinking back at Rhythmia and at the time you were doing breath work and Wim Hof and all of that. And I actually was pretty comfortable in there because it was like, oh, Wim Hof stuff, I could hold, it goes back into the competitive side of things. I could stay in the cold longer than all these guys. I've been doing this for a while. I can hold my breath longer than all these guys. That was true in that exercise with the rest of the group. But it was also true that the exact things that I was doing all of this time, in this case, the Wim Hof practice, which I've been doing for quite a bit of time beforehand, wasn't touching the right effects to be able to have the true positive like impact. So it really is to be able to calm yourself down, listen to your inside, realize in my career at least that all of the ideas that come to me aren't really my ego and my brain creating them. They're these feelings that kind of come from the heart that can often turn into visualizations or sounds in my head. And then my brain has to click in and figure out what that means. And the brain, is, that's where actually you usually can mess things up. But you start to realize that, oh, there's this whole other world that your tension and your stress and your ego and I'm smarter than everyone else and I'm not a good for nothing, like gets in the way of all that shit. So I would say the lights definitely have turned on and I recognize like we've talked recently I'm buried in my work right now and I go oh I need to make sure I don't let my spiritual practice my meditation practice all these practices slack because I always worry like I'm going to lose something and it's going to go back but then at the same time all of that those insights and all of everything are just flowing so smoothly that it's it's in a way it's different than the practice the practice complements it and the practice helps you get there but it isn't the practice that is there. It's just the practice that helps you get there. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I got a ton of questions around. I don't even know how to ask the questions that I wanna ask. So um, from a startup and entrepreneur perspective, what would you say has changed old Scott to new Scott? And um, yeah, let's just, let's just start with that. Cause I got a, a second layer to that question about what you just mentioned, but is there any difference? Are you looking at things differently? Projects you're doing differently? You know, because before you were doing them more um, to get the success, maybe recognition, maybe to prove. Um, then you had some realizations about how that's not important or fulfilling or the answer. And But you're still on that entrepreneurial path where you're starting up. So what's changed, if anything? Are you, how are you looking at things differently now? And have you seen any difference in the way, you know, these businesses have been unfolded? I do. So first of all, uh, once I started to escape that, thing that would drag me down, I uh, started to avoid it um, because I thought this, this is bad. This is toxic for me. I, I need to give myself space away from this, maybe forever, um, because I don't want to be that person again. And now here I am moving a million miles an hour in a startup. What are some of the differences? Um, I did make the decision that every time I've been a CEO of a startup, I always go, why the hell am I a CEO of a startup? I'm never going to do that again. But then it's that little person of, you need to be the smartest person and you don't need to let other people lead you that, that pushes you towards that. So nowadays I'm actually doing, I just want to build the ideas that come to me 
and help other people build them. Um, so I'm just leading kind of technology vision, R&D stuff, and specifically working on the problems. And, you know, I have a couple, you know, several ideas that are split between multiple companies where it's like, you know, let, let me help the team. Let me work through some of the technical challenges. Let me seed some of these technology ideas into your company. I don't need to lead the whole thing, but, you know, maybe this is worth a couple percentage points of your company. And, uh, you know, so that's a different, different just in regards to what, how I approach things. Now, people I've struggled with the traditional tech employees are very much, I need to be better than the next person. It's all about winning um, at the expense of your teammates. Oftentimes it's all about ego. It's all about those same insecurities that call all those behavior. I'm surrounded by them right now. And I do feel like my job is to help people through those problems that I know very well. But at the same time, and, and this knows, uh, I have my days where I'm like, oh, I still feel like I have to escape this. But then I have to remember that those people are my teachers because I know that darkness. I know what haunts them. And I know these insecurities and all this kind of good stuff. So getting myself adaptive, just being comfortable and working and just trying to help those kind of things it's it's uh, actually one of the bigger challenges, much harder than technical challenges. Yeah, and that was one of my my the second layers to the question because I know a few people that have, like I said, a, a similar experience where they have this shift, but that old them creeps in. You know that those old tendencies, the competitiveness, or um, you know the wanting to win, or the wanting to be the best, or whatever you know drove them before, um, which probably leads back to someone telling them they weren't good enough or yeah. this shitty upbringing or whatever. So how do you, so you sort of touched on that, but how do you, do you deal with that now? Is it like, you know, you said it's a teacher, but is it something you think is always going to be there or something that you're working? It's getting, it's, it's, that voice is getting smaller. Like what would you, what would you say to someone who's experiencing that trying to make a change? It is always going to be there because that it is not me. That it is the suffering and the, the challenge of, of life in the entire world in the moment you begin to recognize, and, and it's the same thing, time slip, where I have to remind myself, but in regards to how much time slips, not more than a couple hours, where I, you get to a point where you can observe that person, Scott, and it's not you. You can observe that person and then start to think, start feel bad, you know, feel a little bad for that person. Call yourself out that that person isn't real. Um, you begin to recognize that that's, you know, not to get too much in it, but that is a, the mask that is, that is not you. And once you begin to observe that person and realize that it isn't you, it's much easier to be a friend to someone else than it is to be a friend to yourself. Uh, if, if you know what I mean there. So that has been the biggest thing is to be able to turn in the observer when it becomes on those behaviors of what you used to think is really yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, and, and my partner Thais would probably say something along the lines of, you know, you want to thank that person because that person taught you a lot and give you a lot of experience and bring, brought you to where you are today, but know that it, yeah, it's no longer you and you can change that conversation because sometimes people will then talk themselves in their head about like, you're not good enough. And the, the, um, the sort of analogies he says, imagine someone followed you around all day and was just talking to you like that. Like, what, how would that make you feel? 
right? Yeah. And now imagine that same person you could switch for your biggest fan that's going to follow you around all day and say like, hey, Scott, you got it, man. You're doing this. Great job. Keep it up. And when you change the voice inside your head to an actual person following you around saying those same things, for me, it was like a really good aha moment. It's like, yeah, like, why do we do this for ourselves? And can we flip that switch when we, when we have the realization, like, hey, I can't do it again. How can I sort of be my own um, best cheerleader or support mechanism or like, you know, have my own back? Um, what, what do you Don't think about that? The simple inventions, we've talked about things like, you know, how do we eliminate the, you know, energy use and water and data centers and all this technical nonsense. Those lessons that come to your heart, there are, there are much more simple but very powerful lessons that come to our heart. And, and when I get these feelings, I write them down. And one of the feelings that I got the other day, maybe it's related to our conversation today, is that bad things do not happen to you. They happen for you. And once you really realize that, you know, I'm a person who went through crazy shit, tried to kill myself before the, the best person in the world almost bailed out on me in Anissa. But if none of that would have happened, um, none of this would have happened. I would have never right. met you. I would have never realized these things that ended up being these like important lessons. So what you begin to realize is, is all of this good or bad is just like perception perception 100% yeah um, so good or bad actually isn't real even and you know one of the reasons I really liked you arrhythmia was I, I still was at a phase when I was there where I was a little bit uncomfortable with a little overuse of the spiritual languages and I get you I understand vibrations and vi all this kind of stuff but uh you you spoke uh you, you were between the uh between areas where I felt comfortable that you weren't a little uh little too much granola and I think that's kind of where we hit off but that is like a lot of things is is you begin to realize that everything is just your perception of everything and, and actually you could argue that because the scales of things bad always results in good and you know it's all it's it's all perfect and that can apply to everything that's going on in the world right now right like everything that's happening like we don't know what comes next and if this had to happen for something that's greater that's next or the mind wants to go in all these different places and try to believe and fear and you know on the opposite end like extreme optimism and you know like the whole woo-woo of the universe and and like it's all different perception different perspectives different ideas and ultimately it's all perfect it's it is all perfect um and and i tell people just apply to what's going on now the more you can detach from like clinging on to any one ideology because um, there's a lot of shit that's out there right now that's trying to claim about what's actually happening. You know, like for me, it was my daily meditation. I really just hammered down January 1st. I was like, okay, I'm doing 60 minutes a day as long as I can go every single day to start the day. And it was tough. There's a few days I almost missed, but I've been pretty consistent. Well, very consistent. I haven't missed a day yet. And I realized that when I quiet my own mind, I quiet the bullshit. And then all these things are like, so like, okay, I don't really care so much anymore. I'm here now. And it's like, I'm allowing myself to be more present to not attaching to these crazy ideologies that are, you know, being thrown around on TV and the news, people, Facebook groups, Twitter. And it makes life a lot different and much easier to sort of um, be in flow. So um, I love that analogy and it's all happening for us. And, and I think just to add one last on that point, is maybe this curveball was needed for everyone to fucking take a look at themselves to say like, holy shit, like I have work to do. 
you know, I was, I was stuck in this rat race, my head down, not even realizing my life was passing before my eyes. And now I had to stop and like, think the world is falling apart for me to realize, okay, like I'm a, I'm a human being alive at this time. What am I doing with my life? Yeah. And I think maybe. many people had that wake up call. Yeah. It's, it's just like everything. This is, you know, if this is a teacher then this is a gift in some ways, if you're fighting or you're looking to defeat the teacher or this gift, are you really going to learn the lessons, you know? And right. uh, I feel the same way. Who, who's to say this is bad? Um, losing a loved one hurts. Um, but at the same time, um, we can lose half the population. There's still more people than when I, you and I were born. Uh, we're going to be okay. We're going to survive. Let's get through this. What are the lessons that we need to learn, not by defeating something, but maybe by making something heal, uh, maybe it's a sick, who knows? It's, yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, I do appreciate kind of getting things starting to open back up and numbers starting to go down. That feels good. It feels great, yeah, it feels great. Um, one more question about um, tech companies before we move on, because I want to hear a bit about your dark retreat experience and some of the projects you're working on now. Um, you yeah. mentioned about that mindset, that robotic mindset about winning competition, um, a bit of a cutthroatness in those sort of industries. Do you think that's necessary that drives the growth that we've seen, like the speed of processors doubling every X amount of months and this rapid growth in technology is sort of fueled by that kind of energy of this competitiveness? Um, or do you think um, it can also be hindering it where we're keeping ideas for profit and trying to compete with each other, whereas something new could be more supportive, more balanced, more heart-based and more open source? And do you think it's possible to change the current uh, mindsets uh, and energy that is in, in these spaces? Yeah, I think when things move at, when innovation happens at chaotic speed, uh, you could almost expect chaos. Um, and, you know, so, so the answer is, is, is I think a lot of, um, if I didn't go through uh, everything that I went through, I, I wouldn't be the person today who receives beautiful ideas to try to make things out of. Um, so, so I would say if I had never gone through those challenges, I never would have received these gifts. And so I think the ultra idealistic version of this new way where everything is going to be perfect. And, and, and uh, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm not fully, believe in that. I think all the, the difference and it goes down to perceptions because I'm not a big believer in like good or bad being like real is it's all on how you perceive those things. So I think the challenges all will remain the good days and the tougher days or uh, I think that the, there is no such thing as a good day without a bad day. Um, and, and I think that all of those will, I, I just think it's our own mindset of how we approach those challenges is, is what can change for the better. But um, at the same time, it's you, it's going to be your choice. You know, if an asteroid comes down and is about ready to hit the planet of you to decide whether that's a good or a bad thing and how to live your last lives. Um, but the reality remains the same. It's just what we think of it. So mm. at the end of the day, I really think that challenges are a gift that, you know, to go back to things, and you had mentioned that you noticed in the pool of my toe, that's kind of funny, is you come to realize, and so the cancer thing, which was, was initially, I was, was a stage four cancer, and not a good thing. Cancer 
in almost losing the most important person in my life are the greatest gifts. And I wouldn't change history at all. Um, mm. Because none of those, there's such incredible lessons around those things that, um, no, they're, they're not bad. Definitely tough. Definitely more mm. challenging at the time. But would I take any of them back? Nope. And if something comes back um, and decides to do whatever with me, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I, I strongly believe though, like when your body is in a state of um, distress, meaning overly stressed, anxious, you know, Bruce Lipton, all these guys talk about this, like the cells cannot thrive in that environment over time, it just becomes more acidic. And, you know, eventually like things like cancer happen. And, you know, it seems like your whole energy since then has shifted in like 180 degrees. And now you're well, so, in a thriving mindset. Well, what's what's your take on that? Uh, what, what, let's talk a little bit about the toe and cancer. So, so by the way, my right toe is missing. Same toe that took Bob Marley. Fortunately, didn't take me at the moment. And so, what happened to me is, is when I was probably 15 years old, um, I was in a very, very dark spot. And I remember crawling into behind my room in the closet. There was a little hatch that went into the attic, and I put a a uh, extension cord and I tried to hang myself and uh, I went unconscious and it broke and uh, I was in an incredibly dark spot and the next day sucked and what I remember is the next day there's like the girl next door to me who I guess I kind of had a little bit of a crush on she's a couple years older than me she had a little Carmen Ghia VW and uh, that next day I was probably trying to be cool or whatever but I was barefoot on a skateboard and I grabbed her car and she sped up and then skateboarding at the speed wobbles, whatever. I bailed and I took my top of my toe off. It took the toenail off and it was pretty nasty and all this kind of fun stuff. And the, that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it sucked and it hurt so much that I stopped thinking about killing myself oh. and, it, and it never came back. And still the depression and all of those hard teenage things were but in a way it never came back. So what was weird is, is that's where I lost my toenail first and then it grew back. And then when it grew back, it had uh, like a brown spot under your toenail. And uh, through the years, the doctor said, oh, that's probably toenail fungus. And you always mangle your feet because I'm into kicking stuff, uh, kickboxing. And so for all of these years, which is from age 15 to age, I don't know what it was, close to 45, 30 years, 25 years, I had this black, mark under my toenail and i just thought it was toenail fungus didn't want to do the medication because not good for your liver or whatever and that was cancer all of those years and then what happened is is when i reached the hard spot in my startup right before the time and this uh, uh was gonna leave me and all of this it started to grow wow. and i'm all oh this sucks and then anissa said oh you can she's a hippie put tea tree tea tree oil on it every day and, so, and trim back the nail. So I was doing the hippie thing and I'm trimming back the nail. And then I'm all, oh, I think this is working. I think it's going away. The reality is I just trimmed the nail so far back. It just looked less bad. But then I'm all, well, I think it's going away. But what about the fungus that's still in the skin? And then I looked on the internet and I died. I'm all, oh, shit. Yeah. So that ended up being like the most serious melanoma that the skin cancer that there is in the human body and they took a punch biopsy and it went as far as the biopsy would take it down to the bone and that's where they told me stage four but my belief is 
my body took that pain when I was 15 years old and pushed it as far away from me as it could to the very bottom of my toe. And it stood there until it erupted over again and couldn't hold it anymore because of the stress. And then it came back to get me. And uh, the good news was, is, uh, you know, that, that one of the doctors said, you know, I'm not really not supposed to tell you that, but that melanoma right there should have killed you 25 years ago. So when I had the surgery, which they took some uh, lymph nodes out and they took my toe off and everything, he said, if I was you, this is an official medical advice, but I would bet it hasn't spread uh, into your blood. And, and so the good news is, is I lost my toe, the cancer went away and it never spread outside of my toe. And, uh, you know, so, so, you know, ended up being decent, but I really feel like that's that such an interesting story. That's such an interesting story. Yeah. So are you going to just finish there? You feel that? I feel that that cancer was exactly that trauma that I bundled up and something in my body, put it to the furthest corner until it couldn't hold it anymore. And then it came back to want to get me. <laughs> yeah. It, there's, there's a lot of people that are, I guess, alternative medicine or are looking at like energetic, like when the body says no and how we store trauma in the body and how, you know, that could be a representation of what you're going through at that point in your life, maybe buried it down. Like there's so many like interesting uh, ways you can analyze that. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have different theories. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, that there is an injury that coincides with the darkest point in your life that came back full steam at the second darkest another like a revision of that darkest you know night of the soul revisited interesting okay let's switch gears a bit scott i want to i want to talk to you about why someone or anyone would want to crawl into a cave in pitch black darkness in the middle of guatemala for seven days in isolation what what's what's what what attracted you to want to do something like that and why would someone else want to do that Tell me about that. So I would say that it, it was fascinating with me because it's it's part of a long-standing tradition in this Kala Chakra Buddhist practice that I do. So I had read about it, and then in some of the uh, Hindu Indian practices, there's some of that uh, in uh, one in the Arwako or the Kogi process, which I ended up making a friend in Colombia. That's you know part of some of their process when they're spiritual leaders or mamos are born their first nine years in darkness so i i was uh and i guess i'm a glutton for punishment also as well but in plant medicine kind of ceremonies i began to further progress into this area that i i felt where i was going into in buddhism you would describe as emptiness um and and i knew through those studies that this was a potential area to explore the process, that process of going there. And what I'll say is, is, and I didn't expect this to be the fact, but being able to explore that for close to a week without having to be intoxicated uh, by, uh, by something that, that doesn't keep you completely sober to be able to digest everything um, like you would in this world so I didn't know what to expect. Um, I thought it was going to be like a cool mindfulness challenge that was going to test my discipline, which I, it absolutely did. Um, I, I had uh, a hopeful intention that, you know, it could I could learn interesting things through there. So it was just part of my spiritual discipline, uh, curiosity practice. Um, 
And yeah, I went to, uh, it actually was very difficult to find a place, even like kind of during COVID times, especially, there isn't a lot of places that kind of host these type of retreats. And, and when I say darkness, um, there is no light. You can't, it's perfect darkness. And uh, so it took a while to line up the right place, but you know, then an opportunity came last Thanksgiving where instead of eating turkey, um, I got to eat, uh, eat darkness um, uh, in this cool place called the Hermitage in uh, Guatemala. Awesome. And, and so were you, um, there was food, you would eat food every day and, and you were there for seven days straight and right? Yeah. You bring some food, you, you get interaction with a human being at least once a day. Was that how it worked? No, so my original intention when I went there and, and they changed my mind was, is part of healing of cancer. I had worked with uh, some scientists at USC who were advising me to do um, avoid glucoses because sugars can't feed on fats. They feed on sugars and use fasting because fasting, you know, for a three day period can autophagy completely rebuild the immune system. So my intention was is to not eat at all during that week. And the reason being is, is I know the normal protocol is there's a, a dual door slot where they'll drop food twice a day. But then I thought that, no, that's going to give my mind something to count days on. And I actually want to lose count of the days. So when I went there um, and they were pretty stringent, like they wanted to know like who my teacher was and if I, you know, to confirm that I'm ready for this type of exercise and, and all of that kind of good stuff. And, uh, but they talked me out of it because they said, well, why don't you want to eat? Because it's going to be more difficult than you think. And I told him the reason. And uh, he looked at me and he said, please just trust me. By the third or fourth day, you're going to precisely know what day it is. And you're going to know precisely what time it is. And this food thing is not going to work. And just trust me, it's going to be way more difficult than you think. How about you eat food twice a day? I said, okay. Uh, I'll take food twice a day. So yeah, so nobody's talking to you uh, during this entire time. It's complete silence. You do hear like twice a day, you know, when the exterior slot opens, you can kind of hear when they drop off your food. Um, your senses become ultra sensitive. So even though I was kind of inside of a mountain, there were like air vents and I could start to feel like you just hear birds that you don't hear when you first go in there and you can feel the change in the weather just in the way the energy feels you know um so you still have a little that connection to the outside of the darkness but no it's for you're in the dark and uh, it's by yourself <laughs> yeah and a, a lot of um well, a lot of the ancient religious traditions talk about um some of the um, saints or prophets or gurus getting going into caves or to darkness and fasting or in the desert and then having these visions or these um, different types of experiences. Um, and I've heard a lot of people that also do these dark retreats, something common is start seeing light, although you're in complete darkness. Um, any experience with seeing light, seeing any beings, having any communication, psychedelic-like experience, anything you can share around that? Yeah, so it is tough. So what I would say for anyone who wants to commit to this, you have to commit yourself to three days of the most incredible boredom, like time moving slower you could ever imagine. Not a lot going on. The thing that's going to instantly change, and I can't explain it because I'm normally not a big dreamer. And we've talked about like heart rate variabilities, not being so great at night. But unlike my wife, I don't have like the deepest connection into 
phenomenal or powerful dreams I never have. And to this day, I still don't. The dreams, even the several nights before I went into the darkness kicked in and it was shocking. I remember waking up from a dream before I went to Guatemala crying. I've never done that before. And so when you go into the darkness, your dreams become something different than the dreams that you understand. They're incredible. And I suspect the melatonin and the darkness or whatever has something to do with that. So the first couple of days, you're incredibly bored. You try to sleep as much as possible, catch up, let's sleep 12 hours a day, whatever it is. But your dreams are incredibly powerful. So that's what happens. And then as like day three and day four kind of come in, um, your dreams, some of the things in the dream start to manifest themselves in the waking. And, and yeah, like lights do start to appear and that continues to grow over time. I would describe it as, and, and I felt this way, so I'm a little biased in, my, in the plant medicine ceremonies, where when you go into emptiness, you, you actually lose everything. And so you start to understand the true nature of things. And my belief is, is some of those lights that were appearing were starting to show me the true nature of things that I can only imagine and, and, and gather that that path would continue on if I had stayed longer than seven days in there. But um, yeah, the visual and the visuals are very powerful because you are sitting there and your senses are turned up to 200 because your body's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. You are never more clear-minded and sober in your life because you're, everything is so alert in you and you're seeing things like, oh, holy shit, this isn't, I, I don't have like a, I'm under the influence or I'm drunk on ayahuasca or I have a substance to blame. This shit is real and it's, that makes it real powerful. Um. So any messages or lessons that came through for you? Like, was it like an insight that was like, hey, Scott, you know, you got to start walking yes. every morning. And, yeah. So what I believe, what started in the dreams is death. My last dreams were Anissa walking and just kind of wandering and me being above, looking, trying to find her and I can see her from above and I'm calling her and I'm realizing that I'm dead. So the first thing, I would wake up in incredible, so even before I went to Guatemala, I was having those dreams. So that was the first lesson that I learned. Then when you wake up out of that dream and you're in the darkness, I learned the feeling in the process of death. The lesson that I learned is, is we always say like, we mourn for the dead. You know, my grandma dies and I mourn her death because I miss her. I knew what it felt like to sit in emptiness between realms of life and wherever and I knew what it felt to mourn for the living, to be the dead that mourns for the living. And it was much, it was horribly sad. And some, some of the, the way you cry and the chants are almost like noise that comes out of you that isn't you. And it was terribly sad. And then what I would say is the way I would describe the process in the dark was all of your all of your pain that you, every anything you hold inside of you, your jealousy, your guilt, your fears, your this, that, and the other thing, it felt like you're in, like in a Christian sense of things, purgatory. But instead of the God or the devil judging you and what happens to you next, you're actually judging yourself. 
So everything, so your dreams will come and like a dream of, I used to have a problem with being like insecure, jealous of my wife. And there would be like dreams and they would be too real. And then I would wake up and go, ah, that's like a ridiculous dream. But then they would continue to escalate until they get to areas that completely fuck with you that you can't handle. And uh, one in particular was, uh, and this was where I almost tapped out. I had a dream that I was in a world where I was covered with people. And by the way, I have a, I have a hard time because I've lived in some rougher places where um, I have a hard time with drug addicts, people who have lost their mind. I struggle with that a little bit. That's one of the areas I have a harder time showing empathy and compassion because uh, I'm afraid. Those people were all over me. I was buried in a stack of them. I don't even know how deep. And they all had tubes uh, going into their mouth, clear tubes, almost like those old beer bongs when you're a teenager, going into their mouth and a clear tube coming out of their ass. And then the tubes from the asses went into the mouths of the others. And I'm climbing through all of these beans and it's terrible. There's women who are squeezing their breasts into to to make to impress the men, they, it wasn't healthy. Men injecting drugs into their veins that went into these tubes that went into everyone else, and it was terrible. And I was I was climbing up through these things, and uh, it was ter it was just terrifying to me. That's my idea of a terrifying dream. And I woke up into the dark room as sober as ever. In those beings, their energy was right here, just like they were in the dream. And they were all staring at me and it was red light glowing. And uh, it was terrible. And uh, I didn't know what to do. So my first impression was I need to fight these evil beings. And then when I was, it gets hard to explain when I'm invoking this fight, I'm realizing that every time I try to fight them, I'm hurting myself. And then I, uh, I went to, well, what do I do? It's kind of like the person who goes, Jesus, help me. Um, I'm a Buddhist. I did a, a chant and I called on Mother Nature, uh, the green Tara, to help me. Mantra, um tara tu tara ture soha. And uh, she's the one who uh, rescued the Buddha from the, the Maras or the demons attacking him. That The Buddha touched his foot to the ground and invoked the Mother Nature effectively. And when I did that, which is really kind of just invoking some nature, I suppose, those spirits and they're all agitated and moving crazy. It was fucking terrifying because it's real. As soon as I did that, they went Boof, in the room. I could hear like air in the room go Boof, and they just paused there. And instead of red, they turned to green energy and they were just staring at me and they looked so sad. And uh, I, I, and they, they were just there probably for like 15 minutes. And they were so such sad to me, I started to cry. And when I started to cry, they just all faded away. And uh, mm. the fact that that became real, uh, became real fucking terrifying because this isn't, you know, I'm under plant medicine, I'm in hallucinations. That you was sure, the real you sure that You sure they didn't put like a little bit of LSD in the food just to crank the <laughs> reviews up a little bit? I was looking for like lasers or because the other thing that was weird is when the lights were coming they're a different frequency of light 
So these lights would come on and they would beam in the room and, but I couldn't see anything in the room, but there was a particular like tone of red, almost like a, like a heat lamp kind of red color where like the red came on and I'm all, oh, holy shit, I can see the room. And uh, there was a particular tone of light that actually enabled it to reflect off of the room where I like got up and was like amazed, like, holy shit, this is so crazy. Like, I'm not going to do this or need to walk into walls. And well, the toilet, you know, the trash can next to my uh, composting toilet, the lid wasn't fully closed. Let me reach and close that lid. So there were some of those lights that actually connected into this world, which was really interesting. But um, other than that, a lot of the lights were wormhole like there were some things like the next night after that horrible dream it was uh i i had the same dream and and by that time by day four or five it starts to get tough to go to sleep because the dreams are so powerful it's just hard to sleep but after like trying to sleep forever i like went to sleep and those deep those demons or whatever the fuck they were came back and instantly i woke up and then there was like a wormhole kind of weird round orb that were these lights that were almost like a little com computer screen in them. And those demons were in there. And then what happens, it's like this orb in front of your face. I'm all, what the fuck? And then you see these spirits and then the orb turned this way and rotated. And then it turned into this beautiful graphic and I'll never forget it because it was like the most beautiful art. And it was white black gray purple like a turquoise kind of purple and a turquoise green like beautiful graphic and then it morphed into like this cool graphic and then like every two seconds it would flip and rotate in half and it would turn into another graphic and i sat there going these are like the most awesome like some of them were like cartoony graphics other ones were just visually appealing and they're the most beautiful things like i wish i could remember this or i could draw i wish i was an artist and so I watched that for probably a half hour until I had the thought of, I wonder if I close my eyes, this is going to go away. And I closed my eyes and it was gone. The lesson taught there is those scary beams with all the tubes connected to them. That's just nature morphing from one thing to another. And it was my perception of, of viewing it in a sense of my fear that just turned beautiful nature uh, into something scary. That was my big lesson. Interesting. I was going to ask you what's the takeaway from all of that, but you, you answered it beautifully yourself. Huh. Yeah. So I guess just to, to, to wrap that up, um, one question that I was thinking was like, Guatemala, I'm thinking snakes, spiders, tarantulas in the dark. When you went in there, did you get a good look in the room? Did they sort of guarantee no money back guarantee if anything happens? What, what, what was your mindset around that? Did you ever hear any little noises in the room? So they do have two dark rooms. So when you and I go back and we each lock ourselves like Lydia, <laughs> dark isn't enough. But genuinely, this place, it was a, a, a Swiss husband and a, and a gal from New Zealand. And they also had like a little three-year-old, four-year-old boy who was awesome. They built this place. It was beautiful. So to go into here, it's in uh, Lake Atitlan, which is volcanic area of Guatemala. And you actually go into the mountain and... Uh, then you climb up through the floor into this room. There's a floor hat. So you actually are kind of in the volcano effectively. And you can actually hear it'll shake every once in a while. And then you even hear this rumbling of like the, this volcanic energy. 
they had it like beautiful. The place had a hot, it had a composting toilet, which occasionally you would get a little smell, but um, it, it was a fully a finished, it was a fully finished room in the mountain. I'm, 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 I'm sort of picturing like stone walls and like cracks for so these. So they were stone walls by design. The roof was stone. Uh, the ceiling was kind of big wood beamed, but it was beautiful. It had like beautiful. a meditation mat area a bed a hot shower that you could take every day All a right. sink to brush your teeth You're so like, so so another arrhythmia type place so if, if scott does it he's not going to a cave in the uh, middle of nowhere he wants the, the poshy comfort uh experience and you know and, and people ask me that all the time about rhythmia you know they're like well, I want to go to the jungle and I want to have like my ass kicked and and I want to do it like the real way and I and I'm thinking to myself well there's two ways to look at that. There's one where you can worry about all these other things and take a lot of the focus away on, on one thing, or when you feel comfortable, you're just there to focus on exactly that, which is the experience and not worrying about like, Oh my God, am I going to get eaten by a you know snake in the jungle? Or, you know, is this going to happen? Or like this extra level of uncomfortableness. Um, I don't know if it adds or takes away from the experience, but I'm sure it can be distracting in many ways. Um, I think it has to be like where you're, you're, uh, so I, we've also been in the jungle in uh, in tough spot. And I think I've told you before, getting eaten up by bugs pretty badly. And so we have been there and, and that's been some of like the strongest, most powerful, meaningful plant medicine, ayahuasca experience and other. But what I'll say is, is you have to be comfortable. Like at that point I was comfortable, but Rhythmia was perfect because maybe at that time I wasn't I would have had a hard time surrendering to nature, which then wouldn't enable me to surrender to the plant medicine. So what I would recommend, you have to be someplace and you know, there can be some times like, you know, right now I'm all, ah, rhythmia actually sounds pretty damn nice where another time I'll feel like, oh, I wanna go in the jungle. Whatever feels most comfortable and what you need to be able to surrender, you know, whether it's the darkness or anything. The biggest thing in the dark that I felt I did a good job was is to not have any expectations, just to surrender and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, anybody who does plant medicine, I think eventually learns that as well. That's when like the real thing, but if there's things in the way that prevent me from being able to surrender um, because it's too cold or it's too this or that, you know, you don't, that's your ego trying to impress uh, itself. Uh, mm. So you don't, you don't have to go, uh, go get naked and freeze your ass off. And I, <laughs> I guess, I don't know. <laughs> awesome all right so let's just wrap up tell me a bit about what you're doing now tell me about the cloud thing i hear everyone talking about the cloud and the future of the cloud and that's one of your startups is you know um in the cloud space and, and another really good interesting startup about saving the world's water that's used for cooling computers tell me about yeah. both of those yeah so i'm in several projects right now um that uh involve several companies because like i said I, i've worked on some ideas for a good number of years uh number one is tackling the problem of right now that the cloud you know we don't have to get into what that means but all the back computers that are all hidden that power the internet and all of our smartphones and pretty much everything um currently uses about one percent of the world's electricity just in air conditioning those computers and uh as part of also can uh air conditioning those servers it uses about 160 billion gallons of water which is enough to kind of sustain life for 900 million people and uh solving that problem is key so one of the missions that i'm on is uh 
working with a new form of, of dielectric fluid um, and taking influence from the, the human circulatory system. We think we live in an air environment, but our insides of our body are all in this pristine circulatory environment of fluid, whether it's cerebral spinal fluid uh, that enables our central nervous system and our brain or our blood or the water that's inside of us. So coming up with an equivalent cerebral spinal fluid that can help computers to live more reliably, and then also being able to better capture the heat it creates. And then instead of using electricity and water to cool those things like air conditioning, actually capture that heat in a better way that you can then use the heat to generate net positive energy, thus eliminating the burden of energy and water use to cool the cloud. So that's one. Um, the second project that I'm on is, is for, and this is with the quantum loophole. And I'm a, I guess I, I have a new hat, by the way, my boss gave me, it's awesome. But uh, the, the challenge that we're doing there is, is for 100% renewable energy to really work on the planet, um, you, you must be able to orchestrate supply with demand. And the reason being is, is when I light a fire under oil, I can spin a turbine and generate a stable amount of electricity. And so therefore, as long as my usage of electricity, I'm always generating more equal, it's okay. But with renewable energy, you, renewable energy breathes. You have the sun comes up, here's energy. The sun comes down, there isn't. The wind starts, the wind. So renewable energy really breathes. And, it, and it, the entire world with the sun rotating and the weather patterns is a big energy breathing. And so what happens is, is the cloud has to breathe demand cloud computing demand has to breathe at an acceptable pace with renewable energy uh, source supply. So it's really working on uh, really renewable energy supply and in cloud computing grid orchestration or demand orchestration so that computing can automatically move around the world and do what it needs to do based on the state of the weather, the time of day, the state of energy, the cost of energy, even from a business perspective. And so orchestration, there's really three things that are challenging. Number one, uh, you have to orchestrate um, air conditioning systems because that's still the number one uh, area of energy growth in the world because third world countries with air conditioning. Number two is gonna be like electric vehicles. So air conditioning, that's what Nest and others are doing. On the electric vehicle, Tesla, they are all over that, which is beautiful. They're much more of an energy company than a car company. So how do you move around energy different times of the day using transportation? And then number three is the cloud. So for our world to really be 100% renewable energy, you have to um, orchestrate supply and demand with that energy. And so that's number two. And then number three is, is we have a project that is a former... Um, very dirty, I can't give details on it yet, but it's a 2000 plus acres of incredibly, a place that represents dirty industrial times of years past. And when I say that, I mean uh, people who died from chemical poisoning, uh, 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 the water supply table being poisoned by industrial chemicals, um, a piece of land that, um, used to have a pretty famous amount of slavery on it in this particular part of the country. Land that was established, indigenous area that was stolen. So it's got all of this, so many years of this dark history 
of being stolen and slavery exploitation to big corporate, dirty industrial. So really taking that, in Buddhism, we would call it that the land feels like it has an elemental imbalance in creating a balance in that by turning around dirty industrial and taking some of the technologies that I'm describing that creates a new version of what green industrial that's powered by 100% renewable energy and is friendly and breathes with the planet at really big scale. Uh, that's what we're doing. So that's uh, that's my sales pitch. I don't know if I'm good at it, but well, I'm in. Great. I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. Well, well, first off, thank you. All three of those projects sound amazing, sound good for the planet, sound um, like some of the things we need to move more of our energy and awareness into. And I also thank you for, you know, bringing your energy into these projects and being a leader and hopefully it's rubbing off on some of that sort of tech space, high competitiveness, me, me, me. And it seems like we're, we're shifting more into the green energy space. And I hope it's for the right reasons, not that it's just the next opportunity that it is people are, you know, interested in helping, you know, save the planet and extend life and save nature. Um, but I know that, you know, you being involved in it, at least we got what that I know, you know, one of the, the good guys on the team was there for the right reasons. So um, thank you for all that work that you're doing and, and what you bring to the table in many different ways. So uh, really appreciate you. Um, and I, I think we'll end it there. It's 444, which is a, a very interesting number for me um, here where I am. It's probably 144 where you're at. Um, so yeah, is there any closing things you want to say before we before we we close off here, or anything that you know I didn't ask you that you wanted to touch on or say? No, I said like way too much. Now what I'm going to be doing <laughs> is, is I'm like I freaking talk way too much about myself. So I'm going to reach out separately because I want to catch up with you. So uh, I've already like way too much of my rambling. But uh, that's great. Uh, separately because I want to hear everything kind of new, what's going on with you and everything. It's really good to see you. I, since Rhythmia, I have like family now and I know Stephanie Absolutely. and everything. So, uh, so good. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to catch up. Uh, we'll, we'll schedule time right after we end this recording here. Um, so just again, thank you. Thank you for sharing all the things. Um, hopefully, you know, those listening, you took at least one thing away that you can apply to your lives and or maybe find a, a little bit of inspiration you can build on in your own journey. Um, Always Scott's a super interesting guy. I'm so happy you, you found some time to chat with me. So thank you guys for all the likes, subscribes, follows, hanging out, sharing this thing if you do. If not, that's cool too. Uh, the new platform is launching soon, elementalrhythm.com. Make sure you check it out. Uh, there's going to be lots of goodies for you guys, breath work, courses, all that kind of fun jazz. Okay, until next time, guys, I'm signing off. Thank you very much. Scott, again, thank you. I love you, brother, and we'll talk soon. Thank you.